Michigan native Heather Leach joined Penn State Extension in 2018 with just one goal, to deal with spotted lanternfly. In this crazy year, you may have forgotten that this invasive bug is still around, but not vineyard owners. They're waging war against these bugs as they threaten to destroy vineyards up and down the East Coast. Welcome to the Young Farmer Podcast. I'm Chris Torres. Thanks for listening. In today's podcast, we talk to Heather Leach about her continued work on spotted lanternfly and what researchers have learned about this dreaded bug. She talks about the progress made in developing controls and a big research project in Pennsylvania this year that hit some unexpected snags. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I hope you all enjoy the holiday. And here's my conversation with Heather Leach. Hi, Heather. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. So, Heather, can you tell us your title for people who don't know who you are? Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name is Heather Leach, and I work for Penn State University um, in the entomology department. Um, and my specific position or title is the Spotted Lanternfly Extension Associate. So, that means I live, sleep, eat, and breathe Spotted Lanternfly. You know, it's funny because I was doing some research on this, on, on you, right before we got on the podcast today. And... Um, I want to read to you a Twitter post that you posted on November 6th, and it, it might not be quite verbatim, but I'll, I'll read it to you anyway. All and right. This sort of tells, this sort of tells, it's going to tell people sort of like the, the job that you have and, and uh, you know, you, you say here, counting rotting dead spotted lanternflies without bringing my breakfast back up. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a glorious job. Sometimes there's a there are definitely when you work with bugs, um, especially out in the field, you um, <laughs> you can deal with some pretty gross stuff sometimes. What did you have for breakfast that morning? Oh gosh, I don't even want to think about that morning. <laughs> you, I got to tell you, there's something when when you get a lot of spotted lanternfly filled up in a in a plastic bag, um, you know, for about three months, they kind of have a seafood smell to them somehow. But oh, it's it's pretty horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Where was that at? Was that a field in State College or, or here in, in uh, Berks County? No, yeah, so that was out, out in Berks County. So that was a project. We were working in a vineyard um, and kind of developing some some traps. So as lanternfly were flying towards the vineyard, they were actually intercepted by a large wall um, and then kind of funneled into these traps, very similar to the, the tree traps that, you know, I know folks are used to that they put on their trees, but instead we kind of put this one up on a wall. And um, so, yeah, it was our end of season counts to see how many uh, lanternflies you know, your research changes from year to year. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the focus changes from year to year. What has been your focus this year? What, what have you been really trying to focus on this year? Yeah, so, um, you know, I would say with things with Lanternfly have really uh, evolved, both with my position and just our understanding and kind of um, grasp of this insect itself. Um, so definitely when I started, uh, there was a little bit of, um, shock and awe, right? I think when you first experience this insect, um, it, you know, it is pretty shocking how high those numbers can get when you get, you know, sometimes physically assaulted when you're just going grocery shopping or whatever it is. Um, and so I think there was a lot of learning periods of just trying to understand the predictability of this insect. And I would say that's kind of what we've gained over time. Um, and a lot of what my research focuses on is just trying to understand, you know, how we can predict this insect, how we can predict its next move or where it's more most likely to move and then put control measures on top of that. So kind of taking advantage of those nuances that we know, you know, for instance, lanternfly are attracted to tall objects or we know that they'll usually be attracted to certain hosts at certain times of the year and then we can kind of start to exploit that. So I would say, you know, now um, 
you know, three years later since I've been in this position, we're really starting to move toward uh, creating management um, that's more tailored to this insect rather than just these broadcast management approaches that we kind of do when an invasive species first comes into a new area. Okay. What are you discovering? So certainly, you know, when you go back to that predictability, we've done a lot of work um, just in terms of timing and phenology. Um, so we've developed these predictive um, egg hatch um, predictions or models where you can understand, you know, based on how warm it is, how cold those winter conditions are, were, and then how warm it is in the spring, when are those spotted lanternfly going to emerge from their egg cases? And so when do you take those first management approaches? And, you know, again, for somebody's backyard, this can be putting tree traps uh, on your trees and trying to get ready for when those nymphs first emerge. Um, and then in vineyards, it's a little bit different. And so that's a big thing is just understanding when they're going to be there and what host they're likely to be on. So that's a lot of the other work that we've done is try to identify the hosts that are at risk from spotted lanternfly and when they're most at risk. So that's another part of my job that we've, we've done this year is try to understand what agricultural crops are going to be most at risk from different life stages of spotted lanternfly. So we've done work with cucumber, hops, peaches, avocado, um, figs, hardy figs that are, are actually grown in Pennsylvania, and just trying to understand what, you know, what growers need to be aware of and, and how we can kind of help gain information to, you know, prevent damage if that damage is likely to occur. You know, there was this fear from a lot of people that this, this insect was going to, this bug that was going to destroy pretty much anything that grows in the field, anything in sight, corn, soybeans, you know, down to, to tree fruits, vineyards, all that sort of thing. If we can, if we can go ahead and, and, and sort of do like a, a reset on that, I mean, what are we seeing? Obviously, I know from my reporting, vineyards have really been affected by it. But I mean, in terms of other crops, I mean, what, what overall have we, have we seen in terms of effects from this? Yeah. So I actually super appreciate that question. I'm really glad you brought it up because I think that's really the kind of the direction that we're trying to move in and kind of a couple of different facets. So one, you know, when this insect first came here, it appeared that it just had, you know, and it does have a really broad host range. It feeds on all sorts of things. And so I think, you know, when it first got here, we thought it was going to make us, you know, kill all of our trees, kill our entire forest, kill all of our crops, and we're going to have to evacuate to Mars. You know, there was very much a big reaction to this pest. And I'm not saying that's not warranted. This, this is certainly a huge pest. It's a big threat um, to our agricultural systems, our ecosystems. But we've started to learn a lot more about what that risk actually means and where it should be most directed at. And um, in an ecosystem sense and, and talking about our forest health, there's definitely some concerns there, particularly with some of our hardy wood species like black walnuts, maples, oaks, willows, um, and also often trees, you know, that you'll find in people's backyards as well. So we're doing lots of damage assessments and trying to understand what's going on there. When you're talking mostly in an agricultural setting, um, we really haven't seen the damage that we expected to see so far in tree fruit, even though that was early on anticipated to be a huge, you know, potential loss. We really didn't see that impact um, and, and still haven't. And, and to that point, I would say that I still don't know of any tree fruit grower who's actually uh, sprayed for taken other management considerations uh, for spotted lanternfly on their tree fruit. So I'm not saying tree fruit is not at risk, but so far from what we've seen in the area that it exists in, we, we haven't seen it. Grapes are very different. Grapes, um, spotted lanternfly really likes to feed on grapes, and we see that um, pretty much season long. But then because grapes tend to be a little bit 
weaker in terms of surviving winter conditions, particularly in Pennsylvania. Um, that means that kind of puts them at elevated risk for any feeding. So I would say we're starting to learn what crops are at risk. And right now that's including things certainly like grapevines or other vining species. So things like hops, hardy kiwi are still um, certainly at the top risk factor. Um, we're also finding Things like cucumber, for example, um, is seeming to be attractive to early instars, um, which should be more easily controlled, but we are seeing early indications of both attraction to cucumber, good survivorship, and potential yield reduction. Um, so I would say that's kind of the short list of agricultural commodities that are most at risk. My, my other caveat that I'll add to that, though, is that we're absolutely still researching this and still trying to evaluate it. Um, so we're looking at other things like hemp, soybean, corn, and trying to understand what that risk is and, and if it could you know, potentially contaminate feed and that sort of thing. So I wouldn't say it's, it's boxed up in a neat, nice bow, but we're starting to learn you know, what the greatest immediate risk is. Sure. Um, yeah. And then the other, the final caveat I'll put on this is that, you know, we're finding that spotted lanternfly isn't alone killing its plant host. It's usually coupled to something else. So I think it's best to think of spotted lanternfly as a plant stressor. So as it's, you know, feeding on the, the plant sap, it's starting to deplete the nutrients that that plant has available and start to stress that out. And if it's coupled with other stressors, like if we have a really cold winter or maybe excessive rain, which seems to be common here in Pennsylvania, sure. then that's when you're going to start to see that, that plant decline, the yield decline and potentially collapse uh, altogether. Well, so give me an example, you know, specifically take me, take me through an example, like in a vineyard that, that might be, you know, th where this could be a possibility. Spotted lanternfly feeds in the vineyard, feeds on those vines, and then it makes them more susceptible to what? Yeah. So one of the biggest things when you're talking about vineyard health, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different diseases that can get at, uh, go after grapevines. And, and I think grape growers are constantly battling all sorts of um, things to keep their grapevines healthy. Um, but if you have spotted lanternfly feeding um, kind of throughout the season, but especially late in the season, those adult spotted lanternfly really like to feed on grapevines you're sort of depleting those resources that that grapevine has. And when it's late in the season like that, that grapevine is focused um, basically on two things. One, harvest and, and, and uh, maturing its fruit. And so once you take those those fruit off after harvest, then that grapevine is going to start to focus on overwintering. So it wants to start, you know, um, making its buds basically for the following year and protecting um, those those nutrients that it has to help it survive that winter. So as lanternfly are feeding constantly during this time period, it means that those winter resources that it has are basically fewer. And what we're finding across all of these vineyards that we monitor um, on a regular basis is that the more lanternfly you have, the more likely uh, you're going to have fewer clusters per shoot or basically fewer yields the following year. Mm -hmm. And What's happening, um, or what our basic understanding of what's happening, is that we're just increasing the sensitivity that those buds, which contain the fruit for the following year, have to cold conditions. Mm -hmm. So the more lanternfly you have, they become a degree or maybe two degrees more sensitive to cold snaps. And so if you have those perfect winter conditions, that perfect storm where it happens to dip to those temperatures, that means you're more likely to lose that crop. And that can get more and more extreme with the more lanternfly you have or, you know, the more cold it gets where potentially you could lose that vine altogether. Sure. So, it, you know, of course, there's a lot of moving pieces here, but basically we're seeing this association where they're just weakening the vine and making it less able to survive. I'm sure that vineyard, or, vineyard owners ask you, at least the extension people that work closely with vineyard owners probably ask you, 
you know, then how does that change or how, how, how do you adjust your management to deal with that? Yeah, so that's a huge question that we have. And I, I actually just had a, a, a kind of grower discussion or grower focus group. Um, and we talked about that. And we, we, we ranked priorities. The growers ranked priorities. And, and number one on their priority list was to develop action thresholds for this pest in grapevines and, and basically understand what is the what is the right time to act? Is it when I have five lanternfly on my vine or is it when I have a hundred? You know, at what point do I put my grapevine at risk and need to start either spraying or taking some other management action? Um, and so that's something that we still don't have the answer to. We know it's important to growers and we're working on getting that answer. But right now it's a lot of educated guessing. You know, I can say the levels that I typically see out there in the field and, and what seems to be a problem, what seems to be weakening those vines. And then again, we have this kind of cumulative uh, data across the years of how many lanternfly we're seeing and what those consequences are for that vine the following year. So certainly we're definitely still working on answering that question, even though it's a very good one. <laughs> how about how about uh, potential potential insects, potential other bugs that actually feed on the spotted lanternfly? I know there's been a lot of hope of actually, you know, getting one introduced in the environment to, to sort of help to control that. Where we are in terms of, in terms of that question? Yes. Yeah, so we're working pretty hard on that question because, you know, there's that there's always that underlying um, understanding that when an invasive species first comes in, take any invasive species example you want. Um, so brown marmorid, stink bug, if you want another agricultural one, or Japanese beetle, the first line of defense is, is usually chemical control. So it's something that's broad spectrum um, and it works well, but it's not sustainably, you know, sustainable for the economy or, or you know, the economy of the grower's pocket um, and certainly not environmentally sustainable. So usually that's our first line of defense and then we have to move towards that biological control in that long term to get something that will help keep those populations in check you know with having a more hands-off approach and hopefully having that system kind of regulate itself so we've put a lot of focus um on on that both um native predators pathogens insects that might eat and ones that we could potentially in the in the future release from uh, from Asia, the native range of spotted lanternfly, introduce those into the U.S. Um, so I'll say with the focus that we've um, most put on the native uh, biological control options are certainly with the pathogens. Um, so there's one fungus in particular, and I, I think I've even talked to you about this in the past, um, called Bovaria bassiana. Sure. And so that one is a kind of... Uh, broad spectrum, if you want to use that word, um, fungus. So it attacks lots of different insects. Um, but what it, what's unique about it is that generally it's, it's a lot more environmentally safe, but it's also a commercial product that you can buy and kind of elevate the number of, of um, spores that you have in the environment to increase your infection rates. And you can, you know, kind of focus that in certain environments. So, for example, where we have lots of lanternfly. So we've done a lot of um, work to try to understand how we can use that particular fungal pathogen in forested environments for the most part and try to see if we can reduce populations across a landscape scale. And I'll tell you, that's the number one thing I think uh, grape growers are battling here is that this pest is not just a grape pest. It's present throughout the landscape and they get that constant pressure. So if we can figure out how to reduce those landscape populations, that gives us a much better chance. And you had a big project at Blue Marsh Lake, um, which is yeah, in Berks yep. County. Can, can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that project that actually evaluated those two, I believe it was two biopesticides? 
Yeah, yep. So we were looking at both of them were Bovaria bassiana, but they were formulated slightly different. So one was a water-based formulation, one was oil-based. Um, and this was a huge project. I can't tell you about all the effort that, that Penn State faculty, but also lots of other folks put into this. Um, and so we did ground-based applications and then aerial-based applications to compare those two uh, biopesticides. But then we also used a normal broad-spectrum insecticide, so one that... Um, you know, is, is typically used, uh, for example, in vineyard settings a lot. Um, so it's a neonicotinoid called dinotefuran. And that's sort of what we used as our positive control, just to make sure that, you know, aerial application or ground-based application could work. Um, so at Blue Marsh area, we did these in these kind of uh, small forested plots that had really high populations of spotted lanternfly. Um, and the whole concept there is to see, can we, can we knock those populations down? So I guess the, the long story short here is that these compounds did not work as well as we were hoping um, in terms of knocking down those populations. We did see some efficacy with them, but generally speaking, we think we really need to spend more time on understanding when is the most appropriate time to apply and getting those right environmental conditions because it's a fungus that means it needs nice humidity to really be effective. And so we're not going completely back to square one, but we do still need to really refocus and understand how to increase the efficacy before we're really ready to, I'd say, take this to the big scale. Sure. And and, and reading an article on this, I think it seems like the, the big issue with this with these biopesticides was the fact that it took it took quite a few days to actually see some action from these biopesticides and these spotted lanternflies. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Compared that's, to the you control. Know, compared to the control. Exactly. Yep. yep. Yeah. So when you put, um, you know, any other broad spectrums, that activity is going to be really quick. That's the disadvantage with biological controls. You have this lag time, and so it's just really difficult to really understand what's happening with those populations, especially because you're dealing with an insect that also moves almost constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know that this Bovaria product... Um, you know, will attack spotted lanternfly. We've done lots of lab studies and kind of smaller field trials. We know it works well to attack spotted lanternfly, but it's just a matter of getting that application right so we know we're making an impact. Are you going to continue that research next year, and how are you going to um, how are you going to adjust the adjust the project next year based on the results you got this year? Goodness, that's a good question. Um, so that's a lot of what we'll spend um, time talking about over this winter. Is you know gleaning what we've learned and how we can kind of improve that. So I would say stay tuned for an answer on that one. Okay. Why do they like grapes in terms, you know, why, why grapes more so than, than tree fruit? I'm kind of fascinated by that. I mean, has there been, what, what, I mean, is there something in those vines that really attracts them more than, you know, the rootstock of, of an apple tree or a peach tree? So it's another good question. I think, you know, I don't have a complete answer for you, but our best understanding probably has to do with sap flow. Mm-hmm. So when you actually dissect the mouth parts of spotted lanternfly um, and try to look at what's going on in there um, versus if you compare it to maybe like an aphid, another sap sucker, aphids have all of this musculature, all of these striations in there that help them suck out that, that sap. Spotted lanternfly is like almost no muscles it's it's very um it's 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 like a a hole basically so we think that they kind of need to feed by sort of tapping into a fire hose if you will something that's actively growing and really pushing sap and grapevines 
absolutely do that. And other things that they like to feed on, things like, you know, maples, tree of heaven, it all kind of lines up with that same. So we think it probably is related to sap flow, at least in some way. You said earlier that um, that, that future research, or at least some, some research in the future, will focus more on some of the field crops, corn and soybeans. You know, is that based on feedback that you're getting from growers? I mean, are growers actually seeing, from what you're hearing, are they actually seeing damage as a result of this insect? Well, you know, I certainly, we, we talk to growers and they, they say they see them in their crops, you know, they're certainly there, but at this point I haven't heard growers really complain about damage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the bigger concern there is potentially them getting into, if there's enough of them, getting into the harvesters. Um, and, you know, this is such a nuanced question, but, you know, there's still a lot we don't know about the potential toxicity of spotted lanternfly. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting, you know, lanternfly bodies um, in the harvesters, that could be an issue for potential you know, using that corn for feed um, in the future or something like that. So there's a lot of unanswered questions that we still, you know, need to work on to really understand what the risk is there. Um, so we'll, we'll pay attention to that. I would say certainly for the most part, those those growers don't have a huge concern, at least from the growers that I've talked to there. Just recently, it was announced that spotted lanternfly actually was found um, on Long Island and I believe mm-hmm. in some other counties in New York State officially. So it seems like the it seems like the geography the 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 actual um, footprint of this bug is is increasing by the is increasing. I don't think I don't think that spotted lanternfly is smart enough to to really realize whether it's in Pennsylvania or New York or Connecticut or whatever. So um, it's going to go wherever it can go, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in 2020, we all know it was quite the year. And I think it was a, it was a banner year for spotted lanternfly. Um, you know, we, we saw lots of continued spread in its existing areas, but also new detections. So detections in California and Oregon and no established population that we're aware of over there. But man, this thing is a good hitchhiker. And, and the reality is continued spread is, is just expected at this point. Hopefully we can slow that down as much as possible. But um, it's also, you know, it's pretty hard to stop a bug that most people aren't paying attention to. So. Yeah, sure. I, I know this year it was funny because in my in my backyard, um, you know, I, I have a maple tree, a tall maple tree, silver maple that grows in my backyard, and mm-hmm. uh, and that tall maple tree, uh, we did my wife and I and my kids, we, we did all that we could to get those eggs off, and you know we we did you know we we got some of those some of those sticky tapes that you put mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. on the trees. They tell you to put on the trees in the spring, and you know when those nymphs started started coming out of there their eggs this spring, it was catching them like you would not believe. I mean, we had to mm. go back and buy, you know, a whole bunch, a whole bunch of these, you know, just to catch more and more of these, of these nymphs. And we were, and we were thinking, you know what? I think we got them under control. I don't think we're going to see many. <laughs> well, let me tell you, by August, the yep. tree was full. The tree yep. was full. By September, it was terrible. And that just, just goes to show you, you know, just the struggle of trying to get control of this, of this insect. Absolutely. I, I, everybody has that story, right? Where it's just so difficult to maintain control and, and grape growers feel the same way. You know, like it doesn't matter what you do earlier in the season. It doesn't even matter what you do that day. The next day they'll be back and there'll be just as many, if not more of them, you know? And so I think that goes back to this, you know, this importance of landscape scale management. The fact that you know, there is a buffet out there for spotted lanternfly because they have such a broad host range, which means they're distributed throughout the landscape and on your neighbor's trees and on your neighbor's neighbor's trees. And so there's just so many out there. And it's, you know, it's a numbers game. We're up against a big challenge. I'm optimistic with where we are and what we've done so far, um, but we still definitely have a lot more work to do. So you're from Michigan. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? 
<laughs> sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm from Northern Michigan originally. So up in the Pinky, if if, <laughs> if folks know that reference to uh, kind of where you are on the hand there is, in Michigan, is, is that the UP? Uh, not quite. A little south of the UP, so Traverse City area. If okay. if you're familiar with that, yeah. So um, lots of specialty crops grown up there. Lots of grapes and, and tree fruit and, and other crops. Um, and so I I did my master's degree um, with Michigan State University uh, in entomology. So I actually focused on another invasive insect, spotted wing Drosophila, which is a huge pest for berry crops and cherries and and um, other other specialty kind of fruit, um, getting their larvae and into the fruit. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, I focused on that invasive species management a little bit there. I also worked with brown marmorated stink bug while I was there as well. How does one get into bugs? I know my son, my son who's who's nine years old, I have a, a son who's nine years old, he loves bugs too. I mean, he'll see like centipedes crawling on the ground and he'll yeah. grab the centipedes and he loves it. How did, how was it for you? Have you always been into bugs? <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know, the joke is always my sister and I are actually both entomologists. We both work for universities and, and research insects, particularly in integrated pest management, actually. Um, and so we always joke that there was, must have been something in the water, you know, <laughs> growing <laughs> up. But, um, but, you know, I, I always lived an outdoors life. I mean, when you're living in northern Michigan, it's really similar to, you know, being out in Pennsylvania where it's just gorgeous. You know, you can't, you can't make an excuse to not be outside when you're a kid and, and play around in the dirt and in the streams and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's just that exposure to being outside and kind of, um, you know, just paying attention to what's around you. And, and insects are just cool. You know, I don't care what anybody says, but there is some cool stuff going on in the, in the insect world. And, um, and, you know, I kind of found my passion with working with growers and that's why I, I love doing what I do with extension because I think there's so many ways that you can kind of think about uh, crop production and the sustainability and that overall system and how to kind of um, improve that system whether it's you know innovative using new technology increasing our our pest management skills and kind of that long-term sustainability um, it's always dynamic it's always changing there's always some new invasive so it's a pretty exciting place to be yeah, sure. And you know what? And I think a lot of people outside of agriculture just don't realize just how important insects are to the industry um, in oh, terms yeah. of beneficial ones and ones that create havoc. I mean, it's, it's, a really, um, it, it's a really important part of ag research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, a lot of people, I think, have started to grasp that with pollinators because there's been a lot of publicity with that, talking about the decline in pollinators and, and what that could do to our food supply. But, you know, it doesn't just stop with pollinators, too. There's so many other things to really consider. And, and you know, that also ties into what a grower has to deal with on, on an everyday basis of trying to make sure that, you know, they're they're not harming anything, but they're still able to produce a crop and they're still able to get, you know, food on the table or wine on the table in this case. And so, um so certainly it's it's a it's a huge task, I think. So like I said, you came here in twenty eighteen as the spotted lanternfly educator here in, in, in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, how is that, you know, you talked a little bit about, about how your research has evolved and all that sort of thing. I mean, what else do you do in that position? I mean, you know, I know that you do a lot of, a lot of research in the field. Um, it requires you to do a lot of research in the field, but you also do a lot of coordination between, um, between extension people and between, uh, some people in the government, USDA. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that aspect of the job. Yeah, so that's um, a very different from being out in the field and counting dead rotting bugs, um, <laughs> but but definitely still a very important part. So a lot of your right, a lot of what I do is coordination and talking to people. Um, so things like this, but also you know presentations to affected people, which in a lot of cases ends up being um, 
governments, municipalities, land managers, um, and just the general public, people who own a house or, you know, own an apartment and have lots of lantern fly at the, on their balcony. Um, and so a lot of what I do is that coordination. And you can imagine with this pest being such public knowledge, particularly in Pennsylvania and particularly southeastern Pennsylvania, Berks County, everybody knows what spotted lanternfly is down oh, yeah. here, right? Oh, yeah. um, and that means that, you know, you can deal with a lot of misinformation, a lot of people who need to know about spotted lanternfly to get that information out there. Um, so, so much of what I do is meeting with people and trying to just keep everybody up to speed on what we know about this insect, what the risk is, um, kind of our, our latest stance on maybe either using sticky tape or using a tree trap and all that kind of nuanced um, sort of uh, parts of the job, if you will. And then certainly a huge part of our job is also making sure the public is aware of this pest. And so a lot of that happens, you know, not in southeastern Pennsylvania, but maybe the rest of the state where we're doing, you know, designing billboards and radio ads and, and all sorts of other things to get people aware of this pest and, you know, hopefully limit it spread as much as we can with that public effort and that kind of citizen science. Sure, sure, sure. Are you getting a lot of calls from other states, from other state extension people and, and from other people, you know, in California or anything about, about your knowledge? I mean, are they tapping into you as of yet? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, certainly a lot of um, communications, particularly with the nearby universities, um, land-grant universities. So um, we're also on a really large uh, grant as part of the Specialty Crop Research Initiative, which is a USDA uh, grant opportunity. And there we've partnered with seven different institutions, including, you know, USDA, but also Cornell University, Rutgers, Virginia Tech, Maryland. So lots of other universities here um, that can kind of bring us all on the same page and bring all of these experts in, in research and in science, but also in communications and extension to just get everybody on the same page, get growers prepared, get the public prepared, and, and hopefully, you know, uh, increase our knowledge on this thing before it, um, you know, keeps uh, wanting, one-upping us, if you will. This is a Young Farmer podcast, and I always try to ask this, this of, of, uh, of my guests that are actually on this podcast. I mean, what do you tell the young people who are considering a career um, or are considering getting into the agricultural field um, based on your experience? you know, what they should think about, um, certain things that, that they should consider, um, you know, just, 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 you know, from your experience, I mean, what, what, what do you think, you know, the young agriculturists should, uh, should think about? Oh, goodness. I mean, we're certainly up against a lot of challenges when you look at, you know, global, global agricultural, uh, problems that we're likely to face in the future, um, but I think with those challenges means that there's a lot of opportunity, um, and so, so I don't know. I, I, I love working in agriculture. I think it's, again, so dynamic, and there's so many groups of people that you can work with, um, and things are always changing, which also makes it, you know, again, a lot more complicated. So I think you always kind of have to be on your toes, um, in a sense, with Spotted Lanternfly and with all of these other things happening in the agricultural world. Um, and being... I don't know. Being young, I think, makes it exciting. You get to partner with other maybe young growers or, or young extension personnel, young researchers, and kind of come up with these innovative things. So I feel like it's often, you know, you're often on the cusp of, of something new. Um, so I think it's a really exciting field. Again, lots of challenges, but that also means lots of uh, opportunity. Was your goal always to be an extension? I mean, did you always just want to be, you know, in agriculture and specifically in extension? Pretty much, yep. That's, that was always sort of my dream job. As soon as I started um, working, I would say, with specialty crops and working with growers, I I think that is there's almost nothing more rewarding than that and, like, trying to understand the 
how dynamic their system is, what their production facility looks like, what they go through on an everyday basis, and sort of how you can help identify their problems that they might have and, and work through solutions with them. So I, I personally, you know, I don't know that I see extension as being my role as being an educator. I see it as something that I can work collaboratively with a grower and come up with solutions to problems that they face and hopefully, you know, again, increase the longevity, their economic return and the environmental sustainability. And I think being able to partner with a grower, being able to partner with an agricultural system and bring in, you know, things that they might not be aware of or, or resources that they might not have, um, I think is just an awesome thing. So, Well, you're on the front lines of a very serious issue. And, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck. And thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a great uh, great time to talk to you and happy to give you an update anytime. <laughs> right, have fun with the spotter and lanternflies. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> All right, take care. You too. And thanks again to Heather Leach for joining us today on the Young Firmer Podcast. My name is Chris Torres. For everybody out there celebrating with their families, have a great Thanksgiving and we'll see you next time.